Well, today, what I want us to do is I kind of want to do this with the story. I want to take a, st- a step back from the story of Noah and the ark, and I'll look at the big picture that the story paints. You see, because from a broad view, we see that the story of Noah and of the flood um, is really a story of extremes. It's a story of, of, of two extremes, really, of, that deal with how God deals with mankind. We see in the, in the story um, kind of the, the opposite poles of how God can deal with people. We see in that story that God's a God of judgment, right? What would you say a story of Noah and the flood is about? It's about judgment. God wipes out almost every person and critter on the planet uh, because they're sinful. That's divine judgment. But on the other side of the spectrum we see God as a God of mercy because he looks into that whole mess and he picks out one guy and that one guy has three sons and a, and a, and a wife and he picks out them and their, their spouses and he rescues them. And he brings all the animals he's going to rescue and he rescues them from the, the destruction of divine judgment. And generally what I find with people is that, that people generally polarize um, kind of towards one of these um, ideas about God. That they kind of either think that, that God is, is just this big loving teddy bear. He's kind of all, you know, cotton candy and fluffy clouds. You know, and that's God. And he's really this ethereal, cloudy kind of guy. And he's maybe kind of like a slightly, uh, a slightly diminished uh, old grandpa who, you know, you, he come, you come to his house and he gives you good gifts, but he never really understands uh, what's going on uh, behind the scenes. You know, he doesn't understand the person he's giving gifts to is, is uh, making jokes about him and, 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 and not honoring him in the past. And, and that's how some people kind of see, see God as. On the other end of the spectrum, and, and I see a lot of people in the church world on this end of the spectrum, are those who tend to see God as some kind of a, of a bloodthirsty ogre who is always just looking to smite somebody. He's looking to cast a lightning bolt at them. They read the Old Testament, they say God's this God of, of wrath and anger, and they see God kind of as this, this hellfire and brimstone uh, God. And in fact, people say that about preachers. They say it to me at times, Pastor, you need to preach some hellfire and brimstone. You know, and I've been told that a, a hundred times when I've been pastoring. You need to preach hellfire and brimstone. And they, and they see God as kind of this hellfire and brimstone God. And, and they think that he's this God with unrealistic standards who is always kind of looking to uh, condemn somebody. That he's just kind of sitting there and he's mad at you. He's kind of the God of the big stick. And he's waiting for you to do something wrong so he can pop you one. You ever feel that way about God? I think a lot of times we feel that way about God. Well, this story gives us a more balanced an accurate picture of God. It says that, yes, he's the God of judgment towards rebellious, sinful people, but that he's also the God of mercy toward those who, although they're scarred by sin, because none of us is perfect. The Bible's clear about that. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that although we're, we've, we've got some faults, people who seek after him to know him and to please him, to those people he shows his mercy. And I want to begin today by, by thinking about God as the God of judgment. About the God of judgment that we see in the story. Judgment against rebellious, rebellious sin-bent people. And what I want us to do is open our Bibles and look at the exact same text we looked at two weeks ago. From Genesis chapter 6. Turn with me if you would in your Bible. Genesis chapter 6. People ask me once in a while, they say, Pastor, when I try to read along with you, the words are a little bit different. Um, there's wonderful, many wonderful translations out there today. The one I read from in church is the New American Standard, considered the most accurate um, word-for-word translation. That's why I use it. 
And so I know some of you follow along in the NIV. There's New American Standard Bibles in the pews. And so you can follow along if you want to see it exactly the same way. So Genesis chapter 6. I'm in Judges. That doesn't help me. Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. It's an easy one to find, right? Right in the beginning? Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses of 5 through 14. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of, the, of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the rest of the ark and, of course, then the flood. We see a, a God of judgment here, don't we? For sure, that's what we see. We see a God who's going to judge sinful people, to wipe out all the people. It's interesting. He didn't say the people. I like the way he describes it. All the people, all the animals, all the creeping things, and the birds, except for those that will be on the ark. Now, I did think about this. I thought, I bet you my wife would like it if he, if he would have really wiped out all the creeping things. Um, I was kind of wondering why he added, left that in there. Some them creeping things, some of them had to get on the ark because there's still creeping things around. You know, the creepy crawlies. Um, you know, but he said he's going to wipe them all out, divine judgment. He said, I'm going to wipe out all the people, all the animals, all the creeping things, and all the birds of the air except those who are in the ark. Now, that is ultimate judgment. That is ultimate divine judgment, wiping out everything. Now, before we talk about why God did that, and I, I want to spend a lot of time today looking at why God brings judgment, because you're going to find out that's really important for our daily life. We've got to understand what would cause God to get to that place of wanting to bring judgment. Before we look at the why of God's judgment, I want us to look at a little more closely the nature of God revealed in this story. The nature of the God who would wipe out everything. What's he really like inside? Because for those who think he's the ogre with the big stick, you're going to find out when he brings judgment, he's not the ogre with the big stick. You know, yes, he's a God of judgment. In fact, this to me is unimaginable judgment. Wiping out because of sin everything on the earth. That's ultimate judgment. But you know what? We don't see him as some bloodthirsty ogre who's angry and crushing people just because he can in this text. That's not the God that we see. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord was sorry that he made man, and he was grieved in his heart. You know what, friends? That's not a God who's blinded by rage. He's a God who is grieved. 
that he is sorry that he made man, created him this way, and they turned out the way they did. When we look at this story, what we really see is we see into the heart of God. Here is God who created this wonderful, incredible world. And at the peak of his creation, the climax of his creation, he creates man in his image. The only thing ever created in the image of God, he creates man and puts him on this, on this earth. The most glorious of all his creation. And mankind, instead of honoring him and living in a blessed union with him, chooses sin and Satan and rejects God. And then through many centuries of of depravity, we come to the place where we find Noah living in a world of complete and total sinfulness and destruction. He's living in a world gone mad. Everybody completely rejecting God. And and it says repeatedly, it's a place of violence, violence, violence. A place where they're destroying one another. So God, with sorrow, looks at what his beautiful creation has become. And he decides that he can't let it go on like this anymore. So with, a, with grief, it says, with a grieved heart, he decides that it's time for judgment. And he starts the wheels in motion that are going to wipe out this earth and all its inhabitants that he's created. You know, that's the heart of God in judgment. I think before we look at the judgment, that's a really important thing for you to grasp and for you to put down somewhere deep inside of you. That the God who does bring judgment doesn't do it because he's a mean ogre. He does it because it has to be done but he's grieved and he's sorry when he does it. He's not this bloodthirsty, hatred-filled God. He has a heart that's filled with sorrow and grief, but he knows in righteousness he has to judge sin. So that that helps us a little bit before we look in the judgment to understand the, the heart of God. He's not some mean old guy sitting up in the clouds looking to strike you, but he's a God who, when he sees the destruction of man, the sees the destruction of sin, it breaks his heart. Now with that little glimpse into the heart of God, seeing that he he doesn't enjoy judgment. I want us to think about something today. I want us to think about what could man do to push God to the point of him having to come and bring judgment. And we're going to see there's all kinds of different kinds of judgment. But what could man do by his own free will to push God to the point, because that's what we see in the story. God is pushed to the point that he says, I have to act. What could man possibly do to push God to that point where he has to bring judgment? You know, what are the the things Scripture points out that cause divine judgment? Why does God say at some point, enough is enough, it's time for me to act? Now, in order to discover those things, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to read some sections of Scripture and let you tell me the reasons that God brings judgment or brought judgment into circumstances. And the first section of scripture that I want to think about today is the section I just read, and I don't know if I need to reread it. Hopefully, if you followed along with me, you can you can come up with this answer. What was it about Noah's day? From the text we read, what was it about Noah's day that God looked upon and he describes the people as that he eventually says, Now I have to act in judgment. Can you think of some of the things the text said that described how bad people had become or what they were involved in? Anybody think of anything from the text? Hateful in their hearts? Yep. Corruption and violence. Immorality. Yep. Another word he says in the text is wickedness. Here's a land described by wickedness, evil, violence, and corruption. And says those are things I'm going to judge. Now grab your Bible. Turn with me a few pages later in your Bible to Genesis 19. 
we're going to look at another situation. What I want you to start doing, and I'm going to repeat them all for you at the end, I want you to start filing them in the back of your head, though. What we're trying to identify here is what are some of the things that God would say I have to act on, that it's got so bad that I have to judge, because we're going to pay attention to those things. Genesis 19. We're going to look at the story of, of another divine judgment. This first judgment was a judgment against the whole world. He floods it out. Now let's look at a judgment against a couple of cities. The cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. In the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it talks about how God judges them. And let's, let's read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw that, he rose to meet them um, and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. And he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and, and they ate. And before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from, from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to them, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in, talking about Lot, came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands, the men who were really angels, I really believe probably one is Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they were wearied from themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to, to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law or sons and a daughter? And whoever you have in this city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now slide down to verse 22. and talks about the destruction. It says, Hurry. Escape, therefore, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. It's the town that Lot and his family fled to. And the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Now, before I ask the question, if anybody ever tells you the Bible's boring, they've never read it. If that story doesn't freak you out, and if that story doesn't make you ask some really hard questions about why Lot would do what he did, remember, just because it's in Scripture and it's recorded as inspired doesn't mean it's right. You know, oh, you can't have the guys, but you can have my daughters. Go figure that one out. You know, we can try to culturally look at it. But anybody who would say the Bible is boring has never read it. You know, there's no made-for-TV that movies that, that could be as, as horrific as this. But look at the story. Why 
did God, God sends, it says here, there's an outcry that goes up to heaven against the wickedness of Sodom. God sends down two angels. They investigate. Is it as bad as they say? They come in, they find out it is as bad as they say, and they find out it's so bad, they say, Lot, get out of here, partner, because we're going we're gonna to smoke this place. What was, the, what was in that community? What were the things that marked that community that said, it's so bad I have to destroy it? Just, just holler it out. Yes, it's, it's sexual perversion. Sexual perversion, and then the one they talk about in particular is uh, just overt homosexuality going on in this place. God said, it's so bad, I can't take it anymore. They have strangers come walking into town. Can you imagine such an immoral place that two strangers come in and the men of the town say, let's go get them, and it says this, have relations with them? The city's so wicked... And you can, you know, obviously connect the dots here. They're so wicked that we named uh, a type of immorality after them, after the city of Sodom. You know, it was a bad place. It was a place filled with sexual perversion. But I want you to note something. I didn't read this verse. Let me skip down and read one verse here because it's going to be important later. Verse 16. It says, but he hesitated. That's Lot. So the men seized his hand and the hands of his wife, this is when they're trying to leave the city, and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. They rescued Lot. Why? It says because of the compassion of the Lord was upon, upon the angels. Now, let's move on. Let's look at another judgment. Judgment of the whole world, judgment of a couple of cities. Let's look at the judgment on an individual. Turn your Bible to the book of Daniel, if you would, with me. Daniel is one of our major prophets after Psalms, if you're trying to find it. Daniel chapter 4. This is judgment on individual. You see that all God's divine judgments aren't just, you know, raining hellfire and brimstone and smoking people. It's not just drowning them. Matter of fact, God said the rainbow says he'll never drown the whole world again. But he brings different kinds of judgment. Judgment found in Daniel chapter 4 against a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, the king of wickedness in the area. But understand this, this is hard for us to grasp one time. It's a king, we're going to see from the text, that God had raised up to, to judge his own people, Israel. And they destroyed Israel and brought Israel into captivity. But God had raised them up to be a judgment against Israel. But then God judges this man. So let's look at Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 28. It says... All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. How would you like that to be your name? Could you write your name in macaroni in kindergarten on a paper plate if your name was Nebuchadnezzar? I don't think so. Mark is easy. Nebuchadnezzar would be hard. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roofs of his royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, "This Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, uh, a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the, with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. And you know what? File that one away when it comes to election time. Okay? God really is in control of the world. 
We've got a part to play, but God is in control. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But the end of that that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now what a story. Here's the most powerful king on the planet. God says, I'll show you who's really, so, who's really so powerful. I'll make you crazy, and I'll make you run around the woods like an animal, and your hair's going to grow so long it's going to look like feathers, and you're going to eat grass, and then one day your, your sanity's going to return to you. Seven periods, probably seven years later, suddenly his senses return, and he says, oh, I better give glory where glory is due. And it says very clearly why God brought judgment, divine judgment upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Why was it? Pride. The very last word, you know, you are able to humble those who walk in pride. And I guess God humbled him who was walking in pride. One more. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. I know we're taking some time to do this today. But I want you to see why God brings judgment into the lives of people. It's really important. Now, I'm not going to read this story. I'm going to read two verses, Judges chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, in a, in a couple minutes. But let me explain the setting first. God, we talked about God judging the world. God judges a couple cities. God judges an individual. Now I want to talk about God judging a nation, but using another nation to do it. Um, in the story of, of Judges, we have a, a repeated cycle that goes on seven times. And this is one of the cycles. And it's dealing with Gideon. And in this story, what we know is that the people of God... Um, have rejected God. They're, they're, they're doing some things wrong. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Doing some things wrong. And God says, because what you're doing is wrong, I'm going to judge you. And the way he judges them for seven years, he brings the Midianite army in to destroy them at the harvest time. They plant all their crops. They get to the place where they're going to get to finally harvest. The Midianites come in. It's like a horde. Eat everything, destroy everything, and wipe out all their work. Seven years in a row, God's used them trying to get their attention. And this is what it says in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the, hand, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian and the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And it goes on to say how they hid and God find, finds Gideon hiding. Now here's the question I have for you, for those of you who, who know something about your Bibles and have read these stories. It says that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. From the story, what was the evil that they had done? Do you know? Think of it this way before you answer. When God calls Gideon after this to deliver them, he gives them very specific instructions. He says, go and take care of this problem. What was the problem? Idolatry. 
he sends them out and they have these idol temples set up. And he says, tells them out to tell, go and tear the idol temples down and destroy them. And so the problem that God was angry with is that these people had begun to worship all these idols. They're worshiping other gods and they're not worshiping him. He sends them out and he tears them down. So let's wrap this thing up right now, this, this part of it. Not the whole sermon, okay? Hang with me. Let's think about the things that God brought judgment for into the lives of human beings. Humanity. Human beings? That's right. (laughs) Wickedness. Violence. Corruption. Sexual perversion. Pride. Idolatry. I bring us all for one reason. When I look at that list, it reminds me of something. What's it remind you of? Today. Today. It reminds me of the world we live in today. If somebody said, describe the world for me, I'd say it's a world of wickedness, violence, corruption, sexual perversion, pride, and idolatry. I can't think of a better way to describe the world than that right there. Billy Graham said something, and I respect Billy Graham, and I'm sure many of you do. He said something, and he doesn't just say something flippantly. He wrote it in a book, and he said this, If God doesn't judge America soon, he will need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, if God judged them for being wicked... Uh, he's got to be sending angels pretty soon down here to say, let me, let me check out what's going on, what the, the reports I've heard in heaven. You know, friends, you know what? I'm not a doomsdayer. That's not who I am by nature. But as I look at what situations led to God's judgment in the past, recorded in scriptures, it seems to me that those same things exist today. And I think they exist in a great extent today. So I have to imagine that very real and very severe judgment is coming to our land and the world and maybe even has begun already because it seems to me that a lot of kind of odd stuff is going on in the world today. There's a lot of odd weather situations, a lot of serious disasters, a lot of uh, serious global conflicts that are going on right now. And it seems to me that maybe we're even in a stage of judgment. Remember the people here in these stories, they didn't get. Nebuchadnezzar's the only one who really got it probably. This is divine judgment. God set him to go crazy. I went crazy. Seven years later, he gets the senses back. And what's he do? God, I am sorry. <laughs> you know, it was, you're, you're the God and I'm not. And that's what he basically says. You know what? But you don't usually understand when you're in divine judgment. You don't get it. Not, maybe we are. You know, we know for certain this. We know for certain that God is serious about judging these types of sinful activities and situations, um, and those things exist in our world today. Now, here's the the question, kind of a, a transition for us today. Should this idea make us fearful? Should this thought that what God judged in the past is everywhere around us today, and we may well be sitting in a society in a time where God could bring such extreme judgment to us again, should that make us panic? Should that make us fearful? Well, my answer is yes and no. Yes and no. It depends who's asking the question or who I'm asking the question to. Yes, it should make a person panic and fearful if they're not living in a right relationship with God. Right? People get rained down by hellfire and brimstone, people get drowned in a flood, people go crazy, people get attacked by foreign armies. That's stuff to be fearful of, right? But no is the answer if a person is living in a right relationship with God. You see, there is no need to fear because the same stories that tell us of divine judgment also tell us about divine mercy. The same stories, the stories that we looked at that tell us about divine judgment 
also have another side. And they tell us about divine mercy. These stories show us um, to what extent God will go to, to extend mercy to those who love him and serve him. Noah walked with God and God waited a hundred plus years to bring judgment so that Noah could get the boat built. He went to great, great extents to extend mercy to Noah and his wife so they could be rescued. He went to great, great, great effort to make sure Lot was rescued out of Sodom before he rained hellfire and brimstone on it. You know, think of that. In Noah's day, in his world, it was a mess. And God says, you know what, Noah, I'm going to destroy it all. And in the midst of that story, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God in his mercy says, I won't wipe out the righteous with the wicked. I will not judge the righteous with the wicked. God had mercy on Noah and saved him and his family while he destroyed all the wicked around him. In Sodom and Gomorrah, their wickedness demanded judgment, but God rescued Lot from the midst of it. Why? We read the verse because it said that he had compassion, loving compassion for his followers. He said, there's one guy. I want you to think with me for a second. Think of just before that story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. If, as a matter of fact, if, if you're not familiar with it, go back today and read chapter 18 of Genesis. Chapter 18 of Genesis, we read 19. Chapter 18 tells about a time just preceding the judgment when these two angels that have went into Lot to see Lot later had first of all came down to earth and they met with who? With Abraham. They meet with Abraham and they're going to tell Abraham, guess what, you're going to have a baby. And then they say, oh, by the way, we're heading off walking here. And where we're going? We're going to Sodom and Gomorrah where your nephew Lot lives. Why are you going there? Well, you know what? We've heard an outcry from heaven. And it's so horrible. We're going to, sm- we're going to smoke it. We're going to destroy it. And he goes, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. And Abraham, it says, he pleads with them. And he says, now, wait a minute. What if there's 50 righteous people in that city? Will you, will you still destroy it with 50 righteous? And they go, no, if there's 50 righteous, we won't destroy it. And they keep on walking. And he goes, wait, wait, wait. I don't mean to tick you off, but hold on a second. What if there's not 50, but there's 45? Okay, Abraham, if there's 45, we won't destroy it. I don't want to get you mad, he says, but stop a minute. What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And he gets out and they say, listen, if there's 10 righteous people in this town, we're not going to destroy it. And Abraham asks this question. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And they say to him, no. The answer is no. God does not punish the righteous with the wicked. And so they go there, they find, look for any righteous, they can't find any but Lot. They remove Lot and his family out of the city and they rain down hellfire and brimstone. Friends, divine judgment does come, but God takes care of his children during times of divine judgment. And you know what? We do not know if a time of divine judgment will come upon our country or our lives or our world during our lifetimes the way that it did come upon Noah and Lot. We don't know. We don't know God's plans. But we do know that God takes care of those who are walking with him even during times of divine judgment. And you know what? We all know something else about divine judgment. We know that from Scripture. That whether it's today or tomorrow or in a hundred years from now, Ultimate divine judgment is coming upon the entire earth again, except this time even a step worse than when it was with Noah when he wiped out everything. He's going to wipe out not only everything on the earth, but even the earth and the heavens themselves. 
The Bible says it's a time when Jesus himself is coming back as a conquering king to establish his rule and his reign. And at that time, God will bring human history as we know it to a close. And scripture says that, that uh, before that, that great final time of tribulation and judgment, that God is going to take his children home. That God's going to take those who walk with him home. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians, says it like this. This is the last text I'll read today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15, it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, we call that event. What do we call that event? The rapture of the church. The word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. It's called the great, it means the great snatching away. And that God, there's a day that God will gather to heaven those who are his before a time of the great tribulation, the great wrath that is outpoured upon the earth. You know what that rapture is like? Friends, there's a picture of it for us in the Bible. There's a reason God included a story in the Bible. It's like getting in the ark before the flood. That's what the rapture is like. It's like getting in the ark before the flood. God knows that the judgment's coming and he takes his followers into the ark. Friends, who knows if that might not just happen today. You know, it sure seems like to me, as I look at the things of human history, that there's some storm clouds on the horizon. It seems to me that maybe we hear the sound of a distant thunder and a distant rain. We look at the, the world the way it is and say, these are the things that caused God to bring judgment in the past. And it just might happen today in a cataclysmic way, in a great way. God says it's going to happen. It might be in our life. It might not be. But it could be, according to scriptures, today. And the Apostle Paul said this to his church about that. He says, comfort each other with these words. Comfort each other with this thought. That even if it gets horrible, even if it's going to get rotten, before that great and final rottenness, the archangel's going to shout. Trumpet of God's going to go off. And those who are alive and remain with the Lord will be caught up together with those who have already died and we will forever go to be with the Lord in the air. It's getting in the ark before the time of ultimate judgment. Paul said comfort each other with those thoughts. You know what, friends? For those of us who walk with Jesus, there's no need to fear judgment. Because you know why? His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Amen?